out of Philly, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. I am your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from the University of Lucerne. With Halloween coming up, I thought it would be a good idea to do an episode on the doctrine of hell. I've published two papers on the topic, one of which is in a new book called Deconstructing Hell. In today's episode, I want to talk about what exactly deconstruction is. Then I want to discuss God's love and God's justice. And then ultimately, I will consider different theories on hell and see if they are consistent with God's love and justice. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate money to my Patreon account or my coffee account. Any donation amount helps me out in so many ways. I greatly appreciate all the support that people have already offered. If you have questions or topics that you'd like to hear on the show, you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. Ready or not, here I am chatting about hell. Enjoy. Act 1. Deconstruction. So I recently contributed an essay to a book called Deconstructing Hell. It is an interesting collection of essays on rethinking the doctrine of hell from biblical, theological, philosophical, and counseling perspectives. Also, I was asked to write from the perspective of an open and relational theist. Like that was, that was the point of the book, to look at how open and relational theology can deconstruct the doctrine of hell. Now, I'm not an open theist, but I've published quite a bit on this model of God. In my endeavor to understand all of the models of God from the inside out, I thought, well, you know, this essay on hell, that's going to be a great opportunity to think about how the doctrine of hell should be approached from an open theistic or a panentheistic perspective. But, you know, I was a bit cheeky with this. I think I'm the only contributor to the book that does not clearly affirm universal salvation or annihilationism. So as I'll discuss in the third act of today's episode, I think that annihilationism conflicts with God's love. Also, I'm not certain if the God of open theism or panentheism can actually pull off universal salvation. But before getting to that, I need to talk a bit about deconstruction. What is deconstruction? As is sometimes pointed out, deconstruction is a form of critical analysis developed by Jacques Derrida. But, you know, let's, let's be honest here. Do you actually think that Derrida had an influence on the, con, on the contemporary popularity of former American evangelicals, quote, deconstructing their faith? I mean, come on, let's be real here. I highly doubt that a bunch of Gen Xers and millennials are stomping around in the sewers of France, hoping to find some sort of philosophical gem in the works of Derrida. No, no, no. It seems much more plausible to me that a bunch of Americans thought the word deconstruction sounded cooler than rethinking or reconsidering. I mean, after all, America is the land of marketing, not the land of philosophy. Anyway, I think that there are three broad projects of deconstruction that I can see in the contemporary cultural landscape, or perhaps you might say three kinds of people who are currently deconstructing their faith. Here's the first kind of person who is deconstructing their faith. So I was sitting in this boutique cafe, wearing my Ugg boots and sipping on pumpkin spice latte and laughing about how much I love salad. Oh my God, I love salad so much. Anyway, I was reflecting on this Vice documentary I watched. Well, okay, I didn't actually watch the Vice documentary, but I did read a tweet about it. It was from an intersectional perspective and all about how the Bible is racist and what, Rodney, what? Why are you interrupting my comedic flow? I've got a thing going on here. No, no, I am not making fun of Andrew Hollingsworth. I'm just trying to make a particular point about a stereotype that I see and... Okay, well, yeah, okay, you know, Andrew does like to wear Ugg boots. Okay, 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 you know, Andrew does like to sip pumpkin spice latte. Oh, gosh, okay, you know what, that's a... 
That's a really good point. Okay, Rodney, can you can you send Andrew a fruit basket? Just you know, tell him tell him I'm sorry for making fun of him. Andrew, if you are listening, I am very sorry. And if your wife is listening, tell her that she needs to buy you a new pair of UGG boots. Anyway, while Rodney is taking care of that fruit basket, I want to get back to my point. The first kind of person that deconstructs the faith are shallow people. There are people who had a shallow faith based on shallow reasons. And these people abandoned the faith for shallow reasons, and they've adopted a different shallow worldview that's so different from what their parents believed. So, so different from what their parents, you know, like have long held. And look, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just trying to point out reality. I've watched so many deconversion stories over the past few years, and I've seen so many different Christian celebrities abandon their faith for very shallow reasons, and I've seen shallow people try to mimic their deconversion story in an attempt to be cool. YouTube and TikTok, they are filled with these self-obsessed people who claim to have suffered all sorts of trauma because their parents made them go to Sunday school. Trauma. Americans overuse that word way too much these days. Sometimes when people tell me their so-called traumatizing story, I really have to hold my tongue. Their deep, deep religious trauma basically involves someone at church telling them to adopt basic moral principles and just keep it in their pants until they are committed to some sort of loving relationship. Now, like, don't get me wrong, there are people who have experienced real religious trauma. But far too many of these deconstructing stories are from people who wish so badly to speak of trauma because they think it makes them look cool. Well, you know what? That greatly diminishes the lives of people who have experienced actual trauma. And that brings me to the second group of people who are deconstructing their faith. These are people who have been deeply hurt by a religious community, and they've lost their faith or they've been forced to temporarily step away from the church because of it. I've known far too many people who have went into ministry, and they're so excited to serve God's people, and then they left the ministry after a few years. They were burnt out from having to deal with just truly awful people in their congregation. I know others who went into church planting because of various fashion trends within American Christianity. These church planting organizations, they would tell them how to create their own brand and how to market things. And some of these people, they got grossed out by how much of these church planting organizations made it sound like corporate America. They felt like they were not starting a church, but instead starting a business. And, you know, don't get me wrong, there certainly is a business side to running a church. I mean, you need someone who knows how to do the books, how to pay the bills, how to invest money wisely. But if the entire emphasis is on business, if the entire emphasis is on creating a brand, well, something's just gone wrong. And I know people who had big dreams of being a minister, and I've watched them walk away because they hated treating the church like a business. And I get it. An experience like that really forces you to rethink your faith. And then, of course, there are people who have left religious communities because they were abused. And sometimes the abuse has been psychological. I mean, if you listen to the rise and fall of Mars Hill, you can get an insight into what the psychological abuse can look like. It's not pretty. There's also physical abuse that sometimes happens in religious communities. People in power, they take advantage of young boys and girls. Sometimes the scandals get covered up, forcing the victims to suffer in silence. When I see these kind of stories, and I hear about how these people are trying to deconstruct their faith, man, I understand. Like, my, my heart breaks for them. It makes sense to me why you would walk away from the faith after going through that. Now, let me talk about the third and final group of people who are deconstructing their faith. These are people who are just growing up. 
They're trying to figure out what they actually believe. Because at a certain point in your life, it is good. It's a good thing to start questioning your beliefs. You should not believe just everything that people tell you. I mean, as you mature, it is good. It is responsible for you to investigate what you believe. That can be scary at times. Other times it can be exciting. Then other times it's, it's really boring. I mean, studying theology and philosophy, it's not always fast-paced, edge-of-your-seat excitement. But it is good for you. A mature faith needs to investigate what you believe and why you believe it. That is a process of deconstructing what you were told growing up and then reconstructing your beliefs based on your own investigation. And that's a good and healthy thing to do. All right, Rodney, I need to get the next act going. Play some music. Hell exists on Earth? Yes. I won't live in it. the love and justice of God. So like I said before, I want to talk about competing intuitions that people have. I want to give a clear voice to those competing intuitions that many people have about the love and justice of God. Also, I need to address something really annoying. Recently, I had a debate with my friend David Anzalone on hell and universalism. The debate question was, can a loving God send anyone to hell? When I was advertising for this debate, I got some of the dumbest comments. I kept getting people saying that this question makes no sense because the question ignores the justice of God. I'm sorry, but I don't see how this question ignores the justice of God. I, like, look, I, I am the great and glorious Reverend Dr. Dr. Habil R.T. Mullins. You heard that right. There are two doctors there. The University of Helsinki recently granted me a doctor habilitation, thus giving me the title Docent of Dogmatics. I am a world's leading expert on models of God and philosophical theology. Do you really think that I am going to be ignorant of the justice of God? Come on, this is an amateur hour over here. Okay, now instead of being sarcastic like that, uh, what I did online was I decided to just, you know, take a breath and then ask people, you know, why, why are you pointing out the justice of God? Now, here's my guess. We are living in an era of YouTube debates. And in one sense, that's, that's pretty amazing. We have access to all sorts of debates on inter interesting philosophical and theological topics, and that's pretty cool. However, most of the people doing these online debates, they have no idea what they are talking about. I mean, if you are used to watching internet atheists and pop apologists like duke it out online, well, well you know, then I can understand why you might think that someone will forget about the justice of God. And, and look, I've been on some of these shows. I can quickly tell when a host is ready to have a good discussion. Or I can quickly tell if the host is just a stoner pretending to be an intellectual. Okay, sorry. I was trying to avoid the snark. But you know what? I'm not wrong. We are living in an era where we put up pseudo-intellectuals on a pedestal and we ignore experts. But I get it. You know, I understand. Most scholarly experts are boring. They're really boring. And far too many of them do not know how to speak to the public. In fact, I've encountered a fair number of academics who should never, I mean, never be allowed to speak to the public. It would just be a disaster. Anyway, let me get back to the point of the second act. 
There does appear to be a conflict of intuitions when we reflect on the love and justice of God. And this is nothing new. I mean, theologians have long reflected on this apparent conflict. So, for example, Anselm, I mean, he has a whole section where he writes on the apparent conflict between God's loving mercy and justice. So this clash of intuitions here, it's long been a topic of theological and philosophical interest. Now, to see this clash of intuitions more clearly, I want to start with a common gut reaction. In light of God's love, you might be tempted to say, to hell with hell. There cannot be any hell if God is perfectly loving. Let me say something. I understand this gut reaction. I really do. But let me mention another gut reaction that many of us have. In light of the atrocities of this world, you might be tempted to say, to hell with all of you. We all know of cases where certain people deserve to be punished for their wickedness. When I look at the world that we live in, I strongly believe that certain people need to be punished for their atrocious sins. I see no obvious conflict between love and punishment here. I mean, after all, we often help people flourish by punishing them with an eye towards their repentance. So what we need is a deeper analysis of love and justice. So let's start with love. You may recall my interview with Jordan Wesling last year. Wesling has developed something called the value account of love that nicely captures a biblical account of divine love. So Wesling tells us that love involves a trio of value. So here's the question, what is love? And the answer is, love is valuing a person's existence and flourishing, but it also involves valuing friendship with that person. When God loves someone, God deems it worthy that this person exist. He sees the value in that person existing. When God loves someone, God deems it worth pursuing the flourishing of that person. Why? Well, because God sees the value of that person's flourishing. When God loves someone, God deems it worth pursuing a friendship with that person. Why? Well, because God sees the value of friendship with that person. I think this connects nicely with a solid account of God's omniscience, goodness, and rationality. As perfectly rational, God will be appropriately responsive to reasons, and considerations of value are one kind of reason. God will always act for objectively good reasons that further his purposes. And as perfectly good, God will always do what he has most objective reason to do and will exhibit the most virtuous character when doing so. And as omniscient, God will know what all of the objective values that there are that are worth responding to. So on Wesling's analysis of love, human persons have great value. And since God is omniscient, God will know that human persons have great value. And since God's perfectly good and rational, well, well God will be appropriately responsive to the value of human persons. So this analysis of divine love, it also fits with the claim that God cares about his creatures. God sees that you have value and deems you to be worthy of his attention and action. In the philosophy of emotion, this is called caring or concern. Cares and concerns, they ground dispositions to have emotions and desires. If you care about something, you will be disposed to pay attention to it and to act on its behalf. So that's the bit about God's love. Now let's talk about divine justice. Lots of different philosophers distinguish between the concept of justice and conceptions of justice. So for example, you might say that the concept of justice is giving everyone what they deserve. Then a conception, so a conception of justice, will tell you the story of how you give everyone what they deserve. That may be distribution of equality of opportunity. It may be it's equity. It may be retribution or punishment. 
there are debates to be had here in moral philosophy about the best way to accomplish justice. Nicholas Wolterstorff, he makes a similar kind of distinction. So Wolterstorff says, and this is a quote from him, he says, love is not intention with justice. Love practices justice. So for Wolterstorff, there is a distinction between primary justice and secondary justice. Primary justice is honoring the rights of others. God is just towards his creatures because God honors the rights and the intrinsic value of his creatures. When we sin, we wrong God. When we sin, we are not honoring God's right to be obeyed. So that's, that's primary justice. Now, secondary justice concerns whatever it takes to restore a person whose rights and value have been violated. So for Wolterstorff, this secondary justice can involve retribution, it could involve punishment, but it doesn't have to, it doesn't need to. What is important for Wolterstorff is that we understand that any divine retribution is not ultimately God's primary justice. Divine retribution is secondary justice, which is going to be parasitic on God's primary justice. Personally, I quite like this distinction between primary and secondary justice. I find it intuitive. I think it does capture many of our moral intuitions. When it comes to the case of God, I think it is plausible that God's primary justice involves honoring the rights and value of his creatures. And I want you to notice something here. This connects quite nicely with Jordan Wessling's value account of love. There should be no conflict between God's love and justice, since both, both God's love and God's justice, they are both concerned with honoring the value of creatures. Now, when it comes to the doctrine of hell, most people think in terms of divine retribution. And it's no secret that in some theological circles, people, they just want to get rid of divine retribution entirely. They think that the notion of divine retribution is traumatizing. I disagree. You know what is actually traumatizing? Watching the wicked prosper. Watching evil people rise to power and seeing their wicked deeds go unchecked. You know what I find even more traumatizing? Trying to call out the wickedness of man and watching a university do everything they can to silence the victim and cover up the wicked acts of the culprit. And then watching so-called Christian theologians talk a big game about standing up to sin, but then get oddly silent when it comes time to stick their neck out. Even seeing some dedicate their Christology books to known psychopaths who have actively tried to ruin people's lives. Now, as I see it, the demands of morality require that there be an ultimate defeat of evil. God needs to pour down retribution on the wicked. I do not see a conflict between divine retribution and the goal of reforming humans to be fit for the kingdom of God. Any talk of getting rid of divine retribution makes my skin crawl. I cannot remember which theologian said this, but someone once said that belief in universal salvation without divine retribution, it's only something that someone can entertain if they have never lived through a war. I think that's right. Getting rid of divine retribution, it strikes me as naive when I look at the world around me. As I look at the war crimes being committed in Ukraine right now, it sickens me to suggest that there's going to be no retribution. When friends tell me their stories of sexual assault and abuse, any suggestion of abandoning divine wrath breaks my heart. Last year, I witnessed a Baptist preacher try to quickly skip over punishment so that he could speak about the importance of forgiveness. And then one of the women that he sexually abused had to stand up and remind the audience that this man had stolen her youth and stolen her innocence. She had to remind everyone that we cannot dole out cheap forgiveness and pretend like no sin happened. 
Last July, Pope Francis had to stand up and officially declare that the Catholic Church would no longer be investing in pornography and weapons of war. You heard me correctly. As of July 19, 2022, the Catholic Church will no longer be investing in pornography and weapons of war. I mean, why was the Catholic Church ever investing in porn and weapons of war? Right now, I am living in Philadelphia, the former capital of the U.S. This city is a garbage dump filled with angry people who are constantly honking their horn for no reason. You've probably heard car horns in the background of a lot of my episodes lately. I do my best to try to edit those out, but it's just impossible to get rid of them all. As I walk around the streets of Philadelphia, I see a city that somehow just gave up on itself. Before I can sit in the park, I have to make sure there are no needles on the ground. I, I've, I've had to step over far too many homeless people who are knocked out on fentanyl and trank. When I call 911, and I, I mean, I actually have to call 911 now. This is a thing I do. This is part of my life now. When I call 911 to report a crime or a dangerous person, the 911 dispatch, they just sound annoyed with me that they have to answer the phone. And it takes hours sometimes before the police will even attempt to come out because there are so few police officers left. I once went to a, a viewing of a so-called luxury apartment in a nice part of town when I was apartment hunting. As I was standing out front waiting for the realtor, I stood across from two people who were openly injecting their arms with drugs. And I, I didn't even bother to call the police because I could see a police car parked nearby. It was just right there on the corner. The police and the drug addicts, they just ignore each other. There are shootings every single day. And I've been quite close to several shootings myself, and I've, and I've been sticking to the so-called safe parts of town. On Valentine's Day, the Philadelphia Police Department bragged that there were no reported shootings that day. It was the first time in a very long time that they did not have any reported shootings. They did, however, have some reported stabbings. Most of, most of these shooters, when they catch them, they have a rap sheet that's longer than a CVS receipt. The teenagers, they break out in riots every now and then for no apparent reason, and the city has to pull a curfew on anyone under 18. At the moment, no unaccompanied minors are allowed in the fashion mall after 2 p.m. I mean, you heard that right, 2 p.m. And then the Target just down the street from me, it is looted out of existence. It has been shoplifted out of existence, and it's just they had to close down. When I look at a city like this, I have to ask, how did this happen? Who let this happen? The chief of police, who was given a bunch of money to hire new police officers, she used that money to give herself and her friends an extravagant raise instead. And that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the corruption and immoral mismanagement of this city. And the story of Philadelphia is mirrored in several other major U.S. cities right now. Sometimes I feel like I can barely recognize the country that I grew up in. When I look at the atrocities of this world, I cannot accept any mushy-minded notion of foregoing divine retribution. There needs to be an ultimate defeat of evil. There needs to be an outpouring of divine wrath. If there is no retribution, there is no God. Liberate te ex infernes. We now come to the doctrine of hell. There are several different doctrines of hell floating around within Christian tradition. I will discuss the four most popular. 
These are eternal conscious torment, possible escape, annihilationism, and universalism. Now, I can't just give you these theories of hell. I need to give you a way of assessing each doctrine of hell. So what I'm doing thus far is I'm going to assume that the value account of divine love that I talked about before, I'm going to, t- I'm going to assume that's true. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to consider these four different theories on hell. And I'm going to give you some criteria by which you can judge these different views. So here's what I'm going to suggest. The first criteria is this. If a view on hell entails a divergence from one or more of the three values of love, then that is a sufficient reason to reject that version of hell. Now, as a reminder, the three values of love are these. God values a person's existence and flourishing and values a friendship with that person. So one of my criteria is that a doctrine of hell should not diverge from one or more of these three values of divine love. Now, let me add another criteria that I think Christians should be willing to accept because, well, it's, it's taught in scripture. This criteria is one day God will ultimately defeat evil. Now, why should you affirm that? Well, for at least two reasons. First, the Bible says that God will one day ultimately defeat evil. I mean, you see this in the last two chapters of Revelation. Second, I think that a perfectly good God must punish wickedness and bring about ultimate justice. Because again, if there is no justice, if there's no ultimate justice, there is no God. So if a view on hell does not bring about ultimate justice, then you should reject it. So those are the two criteria I want you to use to assess the doctrines of hell that I'm going to talk about. With these two criteria for assessing theories of hell, we can begin our exploration of these different notions of hell. Now, here's the first inference I think that I can make from everything I've said so far. If God lets the damned carry on sinning forever in hell, then God will not ultimately defeat evil. That's the first inference I think I can make, and I think it's obviously true. There cannot be an ultimate defeat of evil if there are just a bunch of damned people in hell continuing to engage in a sinful rebellion against God. I mean, if that sin continues on forever and ever, then God did not do a very good job at defeating evil. I mean, a Christian cannot coherently say, God ultimately defeated evil. Well, except for all those people over there in hell who continue to sin and rebel against God forever. I mean, that that doesn't make any sense. So, you know, with that in mind, let me make another inference. I think I can safely infer this. God does not let the damned carry on sinning forever in hell. Now, with this claim, we reach an impasse. God does not let the damned carry on sinning forever in hell because God will ultimately defeat evil. But this raises a question. How is God going to pull that off? Well, we need to consider some options. We need to consider some different theories on the doctrine of hell. Here's one option. Here's one theory. This theory on hell is called eternal conscious torment. Now, according to eternal conscious torment, God ultimately defeats evil by sending the damned to face eternal conscious torment. Now, on this view, the damned, they suffer eternal conscious torment with no chance of relief. The suffering of the damned is not for their own good. It is not for their flourishing. Also, on this view of of hell, the damned have no chance of entering into a right and loving relationship with God. The damned are sent to hell precisely to prevent their flourishing and to prevent their friendship with God. On this view, the damned can no longer sin. Once they're in hell, their fate is sealed, and they are no longer able to rebel or repent. They can do nothing but bear their just punishment for all eternity. 
And that's why evil is ultimately defeated on this theory. It really is. This theory, eternal conscious torment, it gives us a clear defeat of evil. But, this is a big but, you might be worried that it diverges from divine love. The divergence, it's not difficult to see. On this view of hell, the damned are prevented from flourishing and from having friendship with God. So that's a divergence from two of the three values of love. And now remember, one of the criteria I asked you to consider is any divergence from divine love provides a reason to reject that view. So given this, one has sufficient grounds to reject this view of hell. So given that, we need to, we need to look elsewhere to see how God could ultimately defeat evil without diverging from love. So here's another option. Here's another theory on hell called possible escape. Now, on the possible escape model, God sends people to hell in order to punish them, but in such a way that the damned have the opportunity to repent, reform, and enter into heaven. So this is the position that Wesling endorses. And you also see this in the writings of people like C.S. Lewis. On this view, the damned are punished. They really are. But their fate is not eternally sealed. There is the opportunity to escape hell, but only, only if you repent and reform. This view is consistent with the three values of love. It really is. So God values the damned's existence because, you know, he keeps them going. And God also values their flourishing and friendship since he keeps providing them with opportunities to repent and reform and to enter into friendship with God. So this theory, this possible escape model, it really does satisfy that criterion of love. However, though, the problem is that this possible escape model, it does not appear to be consistent with the ultimate defeat of evil. Because on this view of hell, the damned have the option to repent or rebel. The reason anyone stays in hell is because they continue to reject God. The damned can potentially go on sinning forever by refusing to repent and reform. So even in hell, human persons can continue to sin, which is why there is no ultimate defeat of evil. And that's a very serious problem. So let's consider a third option. Annihilationism. On annihilationism, God ultimately defeats evil by eradicating the damned from existence. Now, there's, there's different versions of annihilationism. On some views, God just eradicates the unrepentant sinner as soon as they die. Others, though, they say God will send a damned person to hell for a little while with no chance of escape. The damned will stay in hell for a little while in order to receive punishment. So, like, you know, like they, they, they wake up, they find themselves in hell, and God's like, yeah, I'm going to annihilate you soon, uh, but I just need you to know you're a whole horrible person, and that's why you're here. Yep. So they, they're punished for a little while in hell, and then they are eradicated from existence. Now, here's another version of annihilationism. It says that the damned are sent to hell for a while, but they are given a choice. You're given a choice. Either repent and enter into heaven, or just be annihilated, just cease to exist. Now, I, I, I do not think that this is a good option since annihilationism conflicts with the value account of love. I want you to notice something really important here. Notice that annihilationism is more extreme. It is a more extreme divergence from love than eternal conscious torment. Because eternal conscious torment, it only violated two of the three values of love. But on annihilationism, there is a divergence from all three values of love. First, God cannot be said to value the existence of a person if God eradicates her from existence. Second, God cannot be said to value the flourishing of a person if God eradicates her from existence. Because after all, a person cannot flourish if she does not exist. 
And then third, God cannot be said to value friendship with a person if God eradicates her from existence. I mean, you don't usually put people in the friend zone by annihilating them from existence. I gather that if God annihilates you from existence, he's just not that into you. Hence, annihilationism, it diverges from all three values of love. And what that does is that gives you a very sufficient reason to reject annihilationism. So what we need to do is we have to look elsewhere to see how God can ultimately defeat evil without diverging from love. So the final view to consider is universalism. Universal salvation says that God ultimately defeats evil by bringing all to salvation. Universalism does seem like the obvious way for God to ultimately defeat evil at this point in the argument. On most accounts of universalism, there are people who go to hell for a while. They go there for a time. They're sent to hell until they repent and reform. But here's what the universalist is saying. The claim from the universalist is that everyone will eventually repent and reform. Everyone will eventually enter into heaven after they have been reformed. The human denizens of heaven will have freely cultivated a virtuous character such that it is no longer possible for them to sin. Hence, one day God will ultimately defeat evil. So this account of universalism, it is consistent with all three values of love, and it provides a clear ultimate defeat of evil. None of the other views have been able to do that. But here's the thing. This is, this is, this is the thing. I have my doubts that every model of God can be hopeful about the prospects of universal salvation. I mean, if God grants creatures libertarian freedom, can he actually guarantee that all will eventually accept his offer of friendship? I mean, what if God's love is necessarily uncontrolling, such that he can only do his best to try to persuade people? Well, that leaves me with some doubts that God can persuade everyone. Why? Well, because I've encountered some truly awful people that have made me doubt that they would ever consider repenting of their sins. And some of the stories about how God might persuade sinners in hell, they really border on coercion, which is not compatible with freely chosen repentance. As I deconstruct and reconstruct my own faith, I often find that I don't have the answers. I don't know the answer to various questions. And it's not for lack of trying. But you know what? That's okay. I have a faith that seeks understanding. And I know that understanding takes time and hard work. And I also know that God is far more patient than you and I are. God is patiently waiting for all of us to grow and mature and to become the kind of people that he can call friends. Is that enough to make me a hopeful universalist? <sighs> Man, I don't know. I have no idea. I mean, is there such a thing as a pessimistic universalist? I don't know either. At the very least, I pray that all will be well in the end. And there you have it, another episode of the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes on philosophical theology.